up in the regional Little Miss Sunshine? Well, the girl who won had to forfeit her crown. I don't know why something about diet pills, but anyway. Now she has a place in the state contest in Redondo Beach. You got your toothbrush? Check. You have your deodorant? Check. You have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. And you sing. Interesting. One of the biggest independent film festivals in the country is back in person. We just heard clips there from Little Miss Sunshine, Get Out, and last year's Best Picture winner, Coda. They all debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. The festival's back in person this year for the first time since the height of the COVID pandemic. So what's changed? After the break, we'll discuss what films we should keep an eye out for and what's the state of independent films in 2023. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's jump into the conversation. John Horn covers arts and entertainment with KPCC and is host of the Retake podcast. Always good to have you back, John. Happy to be with you. Also with us is Beyondria July. She's a freelance culture writer and film critic. Beyondria, thanks for coming back on. So happy to be here. John, film has become such a globalized medium. There's festivals happening everywhere. You have the Venice Film Festival, Toronto, Tribeca. Can you remind us why Sundance is still considered the crown jewel of the indie film industry? Well, it's dedicated to movies that are typically made outside the studio system, independent films, although there are companies like Disney that has its imprint, Searchlight Pictures, that does have films here. So it's generally recognizing movies that are independently financed and made. And as time has passed, that means uh, movies that don't have a colon or a number in them, unlike most of the movies that are playing at the multiplex right now. So it not only is important in terms of the types of movies that it plays, and it's also it's more important in the kinds of careers and filmmakers uh, that get a launch at Sundance. And that's where Sundance has an incredible track record in terms of the films and filmmakers that have started at Sundance. You mentioned Little Miss Sunshine. There's a long list that I could add. It's also a place where a lot of really interesting directors like Quentin Tarantino, uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Darren Aronofsky, Nicole Holof Center, um, who else can I put on that list? Steven Soderbergh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Steve James, the documentary filmmaker, David O. Russell. They've all pretty much had their careers launched, launched in Park City at the festival. You spoke with John Nine, a senior programmer at the festival, about the challenges of getting films from Sundance to movie theaters across the country. To your point, let's hear some of that conversation. If we step back and ask the question, do we fundamentally believe that there is not an audience for these kinds of films? And I think most of us would probably say, we don't believe that. We think there is an audience. And so the question is, what is the challenge in front of the, you know, sort of exhibition and distribution community in terms of finding that audience? Is there maybe pressure to innovate? Um, and not just the distributors and the exhibitors, but festivals, production, et cetera. Certainly that has to be there. How many of these films are made available to wider audiences after the festival? Not many. I mean, that's part of the real problem. There are thousands upon thousands of films that are submitted to the festival. Um, and, you know, maybe 90 get in feature films. And of those 90, 
uh, I mean, you can find some on obscure streamers, but, you know, there might be a dozen that are going to get a meaningful theatrical release. And that's really hopeful because if you look at the past year, a lot of Sundance-type movies, uh, in, not always independent, but films like Tar, Women Talking, She Said, uh, Till, did no business at all at the box office. So the theatrical model has changed fundamentally and for the worse over the pandemic. And if a dozen Sundance movies and maybe another five documentaries get uh, – distribution in a meaningful way, I think that would be a good outcome. But that's the nature of the business right now. And it really hasn't changed fundamentally on all the years that Sundance has been going. What has changed is the theatrical market has become incredibly top-heavy. There's no room for smaller movies now. It's all sequels and blockbusters. But even with the streaming available, like that's the thing I'm kind of confused about with distribution. Why isn't there a vehicle then for these movies to stream directly to people? Well, there is. It's a question of which streamers. I mean, Netflix has bought a movie, uh, made a big deal at the festival already for a movie called Fair Play. Apple, which released Coda, which won the Best Picture and came out of Sundance, has also acquired a movie. It's called Flora and Son. The problem is that if you look closely at what the streamers are saying, Netflix has said that it's going to make uh, fewer, bigger, and better movies. Um, Disney, uh, which has Disney Plus and Hulu, has lost $8 billion on streaming since it launched its streaming sites. Uh, HBO Max, a part of Warner Brothers Discovery, is being gutted as that company tries to pay off its $50 billion in debt. So, yes, there are a lot of platforms for uh, films. Are they growing? No. Are they shrinking? Yes. And there are new platforms that are coming along. But we also live in an era of cord cutting. So the more platforms there are, it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to subscribe to those platforms. So I'm optimistic that the cream will rise to the top. But again, it's very tough right now to get meaningful distribution on any level. We got a question from Jay that says movie theaters were not the best experience before the pandemic. Sticky floors, strange smells, throngs of humanity. Now with COVID, I won't be back for several years. How well are independent movies supported by streaming and home video? Um, yeah, um, I think, you know, I have to say I kind of empathize with that question because even myself, while I was at Sundance in one of the screenings I was reviewing a film for, there was someone sitting next to me who was actively texting and checking their email the entire movie and also talking pretty loudly to the person next to them. Um, and I asked them quietly and somewhat, I hope nicely to stop. And they said, I can't, I have kids. So I, I kind of understand where that person is coming from, um, I don't know. I think, you know, the next decade or so, we're going to be having this conversation over and over again about, you know, movie theaters versus streaming availability. Um, I think that streaming has opened up more of a meritocracy or more of a chance, at least for a new filmmaker to have their voice and have their work seen. And I'm all for that. So I think that there can be room for, you know, streamers. I think there can be room for movie theaters. Um, and we just have to see how it goes. Beandria, that said, what was the experience like in Park City, apart from not maybe not such gracious moviegoers sitting next to you at at least one screening? 
Yeah, I mean, it was good to be back. Um, just side note, I just want to say my name is pronounced Beandria, um, just to for clarity. Um, and um, it was really, uh, it was great to be back. Um, I saw a lot of, you know, colleagues and friends that I hadn't seen in person in a while. Um, and, you know, one of the great things about Sundance is just uh, you get to engage with the filmmaker and the people who've made the thing you've seen. So being able to sit after the movie for the Q&A and, hear the filmmaker talk about what their intentions were and, and be with the cast and all of that, I think is one of the most, that for me, that's one of the biggest reasons to make the trek out to Park City. Um, that said, I also feel like more and more I can watch, I could see myself watching between online and, and in person more and more. So I know one standout film for you at Sundance was Polite Society. It's from the creator of We Are Lady Parts, Nita Mansour. The film's about a young British-Pakistani teen who believes she has the right to save her sister from an arranged marriage. I'm Rhea Khan. I am going to be a stuntwoman. My sister Lena is the only person who believes in me. Want to help me with a vid for my channel? She helps me with all my training. You are going to be such a great stunt woman. That was dope, though. But lately, she's been seeing this guy. You know, it's a trap. Oh my god, Rhea, chill out. Now, I'm not being dramatic. But these people are evil. <laughs> that sounds like fun. What else about this stood out to you? It's kind of a revenge thriller, but the revenge is against the patriarchy is the way I've been describing it. And um, I love how it combines martial arts. So the uh, main character is uh, wants to be a stunt woman. And so she's constantly doing all of these martial arts. And then it also combines just looking at, you know, um, the pressures to get married and what a woman wants to do with her life and her um, relationship with her sister it just has it has a great it has great dance numbers. It just really kind of has everything. I really enjoy that movie a lot. Another film that's getting a lot of hype this week is actor Randall Park's directorial debut, Shortcomings. He, of course, had a leading role on the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. The film's a comedy about an up-and-coming Japanese-American filmmaker in the Bay Area. John, you spoke with Randall uh, Park at the festival. To me, it is deeply an Asian-American story. But it doesn't have any of those, those markers of what an Asian American story usually has, whether it be like stories centered on intergenerational conflict or, uh, um, you know, going back to the motherland to find oneself or achieving the American dream, you know. And those stories are, are all great and important to me. And uh, I see myself in those stories. But this is really just hanging out in diners and restaurants and walking and talking and, and arguing. And, you know, it's, it's those things that I actually do every day. So, John, that's the story behind shortcomings? Let me just go back and say about texting in theaters. If you are within a one-mile radius of me in a movie theater and you're texting, you're going to hear from me. And as to that person who said they have kids, I would say step outside, tell your kids you're in a movie, and then turn off your phone. Um, yes. In fact, the beginning of shortcomings has what you would think would be a very close a parody, in a way, of crazy rich Asians. Um, and the lead character uh, spends the next five minutes talking about how he hates that movie. Um, 
I think one of the things that shortcomings represents is that Sundance, in in a way, is like a Marvel movie, is a Hollywood metaverse where the normal show business rules are inverted into an alternative reality. And that means that in a movie like Shortcomings, the Asian character isn't cooking dumplings. There's not a grandmother who comes over and worries about whether or not her ki- her grandkid is assimilating. It is a it is a story that could star people of any race or gender, and that's what makes it really delightful. It's a beautiful story, and it's also about a character who's not really likable and makes a lot of mistakes. It's not the kind of movie that any studio would ever make, and I think that's what makes it not only a perfect Sundance movie, but also a real breath of fresh air. It is a story that you typically don't see, and one of the reasons you don't see it is because it doesn't fall into the normal stereotypes that Hollywood seems to love. Beandria, you also saw Shortcomings. What did you think of it? Yeah, I very much agree with John. Um, I thought it was great, particularly for the ending, because without giving anything away, it doesn't really wrap things up at all in a bow. And it kind of just lets the main character live in sort of the mess that um, he's made. And I, I found that super refreshing because so often that's not the case in movies, you know. And it's not like it leaves the mo- people on a you know, a dark note, but it just kind of leaves this open space and it really trusts the audience to be able to take what they need from the movie rather than being super heavy handed. I also just thought it was beautifully shot. It had this kind of like, for me, bubblegum pop kind of visual to it um, with the colors and, you know, lots of sun and, and, and takes place in New York. And I think they're shooting um, the Bay Area, but I think they shot it somewhere else. But, you know, so it's it has visually um, some interest to it as well. But I agree with um, the idea of it being a movie that features Asian American characters, but is not about their Asian Americanness. Um, it's really about their humanness. Beyondre, I wanted to ask you about um, just that idea of a film that doesn't necessarily like wrap everything up in a bow. To your mind, do you feel like indie films allow for more of that fluidity or space? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to struggle and hit the pavement hard to get a film made, like John said, that the studio has no interest in making, then why not, um, you know, just go for it. And I feel like that's what a lot of indie filmmakers um, want to do. For example, Celine Song's um, movie Past Lives uh, that also premiered at the festival, I think, was one of my favorites in that it also was a romantic drama, but it was it was both deeply sentimental, but also like not sentimental at all. And, I've, and it was kind of a new take on the romantic drama that I haven't seen before and also leaves kind of an open space at the end. Um, so, yeah, I think audiences are a lot smarter sometimes than um, I want to say the studios give us credit for. Um, and I, I think that's where independent cinema really shines. And, John, I wonder how much the commercial success of something like Everything Everywhere All at Once allows for maybe um, more room. And as you think about sort of the business pressure of creating a film, does that allow for more of the creativity when other people see that there are other paths, perhaps? Um, let's hope so. I think typically a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is a big hit. I mean, it's grossed more than $70 million in domestic theaters outside of its 11 Oscar nominations. 
The problem with movies like that is they're always seen as the exception, not the rule. And once one of those movies fails, it's considered a referendum on the entire genre. Whereas you can have an action movie starring the biggest action star, it fails, and it's not a referendum on whether or not a big action star can carry a film. So the the rules are different for those kinds of movies. But yes, if you are a distributor who wants to uh, you know, challenge audiences. And I think Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of those movies that appeal to a broad swath of the audience. That audience is out there and they are hungry for it. Um, and they're also hungry, I think, just as, as Beyonder was talking about, Past Lives and Fair Play, another movie that played at Sundance, have these very ambiguous endings. And that's what I loved about them. Same with Shortcomings. Audiences don't have to have a Hollywood ending. They can be challenged and not have everything tied up neatly. And I think um, everything everywhere all at once proves that different kinds of stories, too, um, can succeed. We're discussing this year's Sundance Film Festival. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation. Let's move on to one movie that's making waves at Sundance this year, The Pod Generation. It's set in a future where couples can give birth through a detached artificial womb or pod. Sophie Bartz is the director of the film and joins me now. Sophie, welcome. Hi. <laughs> Sophie, what was the inspiration for this film? Um, I guess my own pregnancy and, you know, I'd always wanted to write a movie about motherhood and the commodification of birth in America. Yeah, and this film does wrestle with this idea of not just how this happens through birth, but what's natural in a world filled with assisted technology. And in this world, nature itself has been digitized. What did you think about when designing this futuristic world? You know, the not too distant future, obviously. Well, the idea was to blur the lines between what's organic and what's digital. I feel like the future is going to be an era of confusion for uh, for us, <laughs> where we don't know what's organic, what's artificial intelligence, and that's how the characters feel in the film. And there's also a question along those lines as well of, as consciousness, correct? And sort of what is consciousness between humans versus uh, artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, some of the dialogues between the artificial intelligence therapist and the characters turn into showing that artificial intelligence sometimes is more artificial idiocy because <laughs> the philosophical conversations are stuck in a loop. Um, but as I was writing, because I started writing this before the pandemic, and then I, I was always reading about uh, develop, like technology in the magazines, and, and actually it exists now. They've tested artificial intelligence therapy in Stanford, I think, and the students were feeling much more comfortable talking to a machine rather than a human being. So I thought, oh my God, I'm not even writing science fiction this is already happening <laughs> and I think most of the technology in the film is actually going to happen very soon um, and it's always this thing that we we create we invent we love technology but we don't ask ourselves the questions beforehand about the ethical and moral and philosophical implications there's also a debate within the film about whether the technology depicted in it is empowering to women and you can't help but think that we're in the middle of a nationwide debate in the U.S. over the future of reproductive rights and control over a woman's body. How much did you think about that when you were writing this? Yeah, I mean, the film is exactly about that. Is uh, is it, you know, it's, it's a very um, um, conflictive uh, 
uh, issue. Like, is is this ethical? Is this desirable? Is this going to help women? Is it going to make women redundant? Um, so all these questions come, and it's a very the moment you talk about the the womb, it's a very touchy issue. And I don't know if you followed last year. Um, there's a whole debate online with Elon Musk about artificial wombs, where he was worried about the declining of birth and fearing that there would be a population collapse. And he tweeted, "If there aren't enough people for Earth, then there definitely won't be enough people for Mars." And then to this, there is a tech investor who replied, "Well, we should be invest investing in technology that makes having baby much faster." cheaper, accessible, we should think about synthetic wombs right away. And I, I, it was incredible to see that this is the solution to, you know, population decline. We should just manufacture babies in pods and people that are extremely powerful can say those things and the philosophical, ethical debate is not even taken into consideration. I love the role that dreams play in this movie, which is funny because uh, although obviously creating a film is a creative enterprise. I felt like the dream sequences were where you really got to have fun. What made you want to include dreaming as sort of an antithesis to this, the technology of the future? Uh, yeah, the dreams were an essential part of the film. They're actually dreams I had during my pregnancy. And I think a lot of pregnant women have um, this hormonal change that makes you have incredibly vivid and strange dreams and I was writing all of them in a dream journal and then I used them when I, I was writing the script but I think the purpose of the dreams in the film is to show that this has become a society that does not value the life of the subconscious uh, it's trying to repress imagination because then it can create more content and in the film this content created for everything for the babies in uterus they can have access to a podcast to um, learning different languages and so it's it's a society that relies on constant content and this is how I feel sometimes raising a kid today that those kids there's no room for their imagination it's constantly f uh, feeding them uh, all sorts of content and so I think at one point if you live in a society like this you don't let the subconscious emerge or connect, you know, and tell us things that are important about our lives. So the dreams, in a way, were a, a way to show that we have to um, try to keep connected to our subconscious and listen to it. And in the film, at one point, they're also, you know, ready to manufacture dreams because human beings are not going to be able to produce their own dreams if we don't value them, if we don't think they have a meaning. Sophie Bartz is the director of The Pod Generation, which recently premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Sophie, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. John, you got to see The Pod Generation at Sundance. What, what were you thinking? What were your thoughts on it? I mean, as Sophie describes it, you can imagine kind of a technological nightmare film like Alex Garland's Ex Machina. Um, and it starts to point that way, but then it ends up being kind of much more hopeful and romantic. Um, it is a, you know, it is a story about women who are carrying around, they look like kind of large eggs outside of their bodies where their babies are, are growing. Um, and it does raise a lot of questions about, about technology and where it goes and the artificial intelligence therapist, uh, I found to be very disturbing. Um, what's, also worth noting is it was directed by a woman. I mean, this is something that is really important and that I think we should talk about for a second. Last year, according to a USC Annenberg report of the top 100 films, only 9% were directed by women. Um, 
And that is a horrible number. Here are the numbers at Sundance. Documentaries, 11 of the 12 documentaries in competition were made by women. Eight of the 12 dramatic competition films were made by women. Uh, Six of the 12 world documentary competition films were made by women. Seven of the 12 world dramatic films were made by women. And five of the nine next competition films were made by women. That is the parallel universe. That doesn't happen in Hollywood. Women don't get to direct movies. At Sundance, they do. And that means they have a chance to build a career. And that is where Sundance plays an incredible role. Yes, it's where Quentin Tarantino got his start with Reservoir Dogs. I was there that many years ago in a theater with 30 other people and was like, wow, this is different. This is where women like Sophie Bartz, who's made a couple of other movies. Uh, there are other directors who are first-time filmmakers, including Celine Song, who made Past Lives. This is why the festival is important. It gets women a shot to make a movie uh, and then that for that movie to be seen by audiences at the festival and maybe beyond. Meandria, you've been attending the festival for five years now, and I know this year you caught several films produced and directed by black filmmakers, All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, Young Wild Free, and 1001. To what extent do you think this represents a change in the festival's programming? Yeah, that was kind of a great day because I actually saw all three of those films on the same day. It was on this past Sunday. Um, and it didn't really dawn on me um, until I was going through it. But I was like, wow, I've never been in a film festival where all three movies were not only, you know, directed by Black women, um, but two, all three of them had a Black financier, at least one. Um, Young, Wild and Free by Timby Banks had um, her... Both of her finances were Black-owned companies, Confluential Films and Macro, um, Barry Jenkins' um, Pastel Banner um, produced um, All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, and um, Hillman Grad, uh, Lena Waste Company, produced um, 1001 by A.B. Rockwell. So, and the thing, and the cool thing about it was that each of those films couldn't be more different. They all are very distinct, have a distinct point of view. Um, I think maybe the only thing they have in common is I actually noticed that children played a key role in all three films, which I thought was interesting. Um, but um, because that old, you know, adage about, you know, don't work with children, dogs and something else seems to be going out the window. Um, and I love the black women might be leading the way in that um that charge. But yeah, I do think that that is unique and it's worth celebrating and pointing out because that's all people have been asking for is just a chance to have their point of view told, you know, regardless of of whatever background they come from. What did you hear from directors about the festival's push for greater inclusivity and where they feel the festival's still falling behind, though? Well, I mean, it could always be better. I mean, as John said, you know, thousands of people apply to the festival and, you know, a handful get in and even a short, smaller handful actually get their film seen by a wide audience. Um, I, I just always come from the perspective of these things are great movements forward, but they also come on the, the heels of a lot of systemic um, exclusion. You know, there's a reason why we're doing inclusion, right? Because for years it has been a lot of exclusion. Um, I think about a film like Daughters of the Dust, which also premiered at Sundance and has a lot of cinematic DMA with All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, which the filmmaker acknowledged at the Q&A. I actually asked her a question about that. And, you know, how many films like that have there been since, you know, 1981, I think, is when um, Dash came out, um, when Daughters of Death came out. I might be wrong on that year, but it, it was a while ago. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we have 
several great black films since then, but it could always be better. It could always be better. This is just the beginning. So let's end by asking both of you how you think independent films and filmmakers can coexist with the big budget films that reign supreme in today's Hollywood, or even just, I don't know if you find that the Oscars are maybe where that could possibly meet in the middle, if there's room for a little more space with films that win awards versus make money. I mean, I looked at the box office from last year. It was $7.4 billion. The top 10 films accounted for 52% of that, meaning there was hardly anything left for the other 190 movies that came out. 10 years ago, the top 10 films accounted for 30% of all the ticket sales, meaning there was a longer tail. I just think the theatrical marketplace for smart adult dramas is gone. And that, to me, is really depressing. Uh, movies like She Said, movies like Women Talking, Tar, they did no business at the box office. Nobody went to see them. Um, and so I'm worried about that. I hope that streaming platforms continue to grow and they take bets on movies that are playing at Sundance. But I'm really worried about the theatrical marketplace because there's no room for anything other than the Top Guns, Black Panthers, and avatars of the world. Beandria? Yeah, I mean, you know, John's cold hard facts are hard to dispute. I guess I feel like, you know... Um, for me, there's always room for artist-owned companies might be a way forward. I think that's something that people should start thinking about more. And I, I can't, you know, even though we have people talking and texting during movies, you have to go and see movies if you wanna, if you wanna see them do well. And um, I, I, that's what I would leave people with. Beandria July is a freelance culture writer and film critic. John Horn covers arts and entertainment with KPCC and is the host of the Retake podcast. Today's producers were Michelle Harvin and Chris Revington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.